You can turn back now to Genesis 14. Genesis 14 will be helpful for you to have that chapter open as we come to study it together today. We're thinking today about the theme of Abram chooses his king. Abram chooses his king. Well, having read Genesis 14 earlier, you might be wondering this morning, what is the main point of this passage? And that's a a good question to ask of any portion of scripture, but perhaps it's especially important to ask when we come across these portions of, of story, of narrative, and there's a lot going on and a lot of names or places that seem unfamiliar to us and it would be easy to get lost in in the detail of the story. Genesis 14 is obviously a very different passage compared to what we've seen of Abram's life so far. Uh, We've had this very personal story so far of Abram going to Canaan and beginning his journey of faith with God and now in the middle of that Moses inserts a dose of international politics into the story of Abram. We have a whole list here of kings and places and events that we can barely pronounce. Uh, We have this seemingly strange incident at the end of the story when Abram meets with the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. We might wonder, well, what is the point of all of this? Well, just in passing, for one thing, uh, names and dates and events like this in the Bible are part of the evidence for the truth of the Bible, that the Bible gives us reliable history. It's not a book full of abstract mythical stories that are set outside of time and space. What the Bible reports to us as the facts of history are just that. They are facts of history. These people lived. These events happened. But in fact, most of the events that we read about in Genesis 14, most of the names, most of what happens It's really just uh, the backdrop. It is the the background dressing on the stage, if you like. The the spotlight, the main point of this chapter still lies upon Abram. And what he does at the end of this chapter. Which king he chooses to serve. Whether he allies himself with the king of Sodom or the king of Salem. These two kings represent the two kings. Competing kingdoms that we've already come across in the book of Genesis. We have seen that there is the kingdom of the world in Genesis and there is the kingdom of God. Remember, for example, we took time to consider the ungodly line of Cain in Genesis 4 and 5 and the godly line of Seth, Cain's younger brother. Those two lines represented the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God's people. We saw as well when we considered the the building of the Tower of Babel that Babel and Babylon that came years later, the city of Babylon, really there's the city of Babylon and there's the city of Jerusalem and and these two cities symbolize these two competing kingdoms all throughout the Bible, right up through to Revelation, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And that's what's symbolized again here today. As Abram has two kings standing before him. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And the question, the choice for Abram is, which kingdom is it going to be for you? Are you going to live like the world? Worship like the world? Love the things of the world? That's what Sodom represents. Or are you going to ally yourself to and live in service of the God of heaven? The God who has made you covenant promises. That's what Melchizedek 
the king of Salem represents. That was the choice that lay before Abram in the wake of this uh, dramatic battle that he played a part in. And it's the choice that lies before us today as well, friends. And so we want to think about these two kings today, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. We want to ask two questions about each of these two kings. First of all, how much do they matter? And secondly, how much do they offer? So for each king, we're going to ask those two questions. We're going to think about the king of Sodom first of all. So let's think first of all today about the king of Sodom and how much does he matter? How much does he matter? Well, at the time recorded, the time described for us here in Genesis 14, the king of Sodom would have mattered, in the opinion of many people, he would have mattered a great deal. Uh, In a nutshell, and you can refer to your map for this portion of the sermon, but in a nutshell, here's what happens in the first part of, of Genesis 14. There is an alliance of five kings who rule the land of the south of the Dead Sea. If you look at the Dead Sea in the map, you can see the names of Sodom, Gomorrah, Bela, and so on. And there are five kings reigning in that region. And they're sort of led, if you like, by the king of Sodom. He's kind of the ringleader for them. Verse 4 in your Bible says that for 12 years, these five kings had been under the rule of four other kings, four more powerful kings from the east, from the land of Mesopotamia. And those four kings are, are led by a man called Kedor Laomer. But the five kings decide that they're going to rebel against the four kings. And so Kedor Laomer rallies the four kings from the east. They come and they raid the lands. They attack the lands of Sodom and the other kings in his region. And they try to put down this rebellion. And they're in fact successful in putting down this rebellion. There is a, a showdown battle between the four kings of the east and the five kings of the Dead Sea. There's a showdown battle in the Valley of Sidim. And that takes us up to verse 10 of Genesis 14. Sodom and his allies are defeated by the four eastern kings. If you look at verse 10 in your Bible, it says, Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. Some of your translations might have tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. Now that could mean that some some of them intentionally went into them to hide. Uh, or else they fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy, that's the eastern kings, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So the bottom line is the four kings of the east defeat the five kings of the Dead Sea, the kings who would have been the neighbours of Abram. And this is an international incident. This is regional political warfare. Kedor Laomer versus Sodom. These are the the movers and the shakers. These are the big names and the big deals of their day. They're not names that mean much to us. But they would have meant something to ordinary people back then. The names of Biden and Sunak and Putin and Zelensky are the big names of our day. Those are the household names in 2023. We might not have heard of President Zelensky a year ago, but it's now a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and we are certainly aware of who the Ukrainian president is now. And those names dominate our headlines. Every action they take, every word they speak in public is reported 
around the world. Even this past week, some of you maybe saw Putin making a, a huge speech in a, in a huge stadium in Russia. It was a huge propaganda event. The stadium was full of Putin supporters and military representatives. Uh, and earlier in the week, President Biden had flown to uh, Ukraine to show solidarity with the president of Ukraine. These are the big names and the big deals of our day. And what they do makes the headlines. Well, Sodom and Keter Omar and all these other funny sounding names, they were the big deals in their day. Humanly speaking, what they said and did, what they decided, it mattered. It set the agenda for the lives of many, many other people. But I want you to consider this, friends. All these big deals from 4,000 years ago, they are only mentioned in the Bible because their actions impacted on God's people. They're only mentioned in the Bible because their actions impacted on God's people. Look at verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother. So these eastern kings, the four eastern kings, they take people, they take possessions, they plunder the kings of the, of, the, of, the, of the Dead Sea. And in amongst that plunder, they take Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. We thought about Lot last week and, and the foolish move that he made away from Abram, out of the promised land and towards Sodom. But the point here, friends, is that this international incident, the names of these kings, they wouldn't even be in the Bible if they hadn't crossed paths with a much more ordinary man named Abram. The man to whom God made covenant promises. The man who thousands of years later we call our father in the faith. Abram wasn't a king. He, he wasn't a local ruler. Technically, he, he still does not own a scrap of Canaan, a scrap of land. He's renting out land that belongs to other people mentioned in this passage. He's not a big deal. But nonetheless, Abram was walking with God. And so 4,000 years later, his is the name that the world knows and remembers. And friends, there's a lesson for us in this when it comes to how concerned or interested or worried we get by the events in our world. We need to remember that the world and everything in it is passing away. The world is passing away. We need to remember that kings come and go and so do presidents and prime ministers and first ministers and all the other movers and shakers. Superpowers rise and fall. Cultures come and go. But God and his people endure forever. And I say this as someone who has always had a strong interest in politics and current affairs. Politics was my degree and particularly the role the media play in it. But friends, whilst there is, there's nothing wrong with an interest in these things, and in fact we should have as believers an interest in what's going on in our world, we also need to keep perspective in these things. And we're certainly not to get completely stressed out and anxious by the events in our world. The world and everything in it is passing away. We shouldn't get so caught up in the concerns of the world that we're not primarily concerned with the church, the people of God, the people of Jesus Christ, and 
what they're doing in the world and how our mission is going in the world. The only reason Abram got himself involved in this international incident was because his nephew had been taken captive. And it's the people of Christ. And it's what we do out of love for Christ and what is done to his people because they're loyal to Christ that is far more significant than the latest international headlines of our world. I'm not saying, again, just to emphasize that we're not to have an interest or a care for what's going on in places like Ukraine. We do. And we're giving to the needs of Ukraine by God's grace. We're praying for Ukraine. But what are we praying for in particular? We're praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We're praying for the the witness of the gospel in the midst of this awful war in Ukraine. The activity of the church, what is happening to the church, is what is most significant, friends, in this world. And by the way, that includes the unseen, the seemingly mundane, routine things that you do in the name of Jesus Christ every single day. Jesus once said that even someone who passes out a cup of cold water in his name will by no means lose his reward. Matthew ten forty two. I was so encouraged when I read these words from Ralph Davis. Here's your weekly Davis quote. It's one of the better ones, I think. Um, he says, what matters more in this world than all these other sorts of things we've mentioned, what matters more is when a father who belongs to Abram's seed sits down in the edge of his eight-year-old's bed goes over a shorter catechism question and answer, illustrates and explains it, and then prays with his son. What matters is when two or three of Abram's daughters meet together in one of their homes to pray for one another or their friends and neighbours, or when a Christian turns in a solid day's work. What's significant is when one of Abram's sons spends 20 hours studying a biblical text and then on Sunday morning stands up and preaches it to 35 people. Or when a Christian mother smacks her four-year-old for disobedience and then a few moments later takes her on her knees and prays with her. Those are the significant things that are happening in our world today. The most significant things. And so be encouraged, ordinary, struggling, faithful Christian. The Lord sees what you're doing in his service. It is what's happening with the children of Abraham that is most significant today. So how much does the king of Sodom matter? Not as much as he probably thought at the time. Secondly, what does the king of Sodom offer? What does he offer? Well, to lead four other kings into a war, the king of Sodom must have been a very wealthy, powerful, respected man. He must have had a reputation as a man that you you follow and you you don't double cross and you flock to his banner. He would have perhaps sold this military endeavor to his allies as an opportunity to increase their wealth, to increase their land, to increase their their power. But in fact, in the end, the king of Sodom can offer nothing. He's defeated in battle, verse 10. And of course, he endangers his own people. Most likely, some of his own soldiers lost their lives in this futile endeavor. And even if they didn't lose their lives, there are those like Lot who are carried away captive by their enemies from the east. And so, friends, the king of Sodom only survives this incident because Abram, the man of God, comes to the rescue. We're told in verses 
13 to 16, that Abram is able to raise a force of 318 men to go off and fight against the kings of the east and to bring back the people like Lot who have been kidnapped. Now you'd think 318 people, as much as we might be surprised to learn that Abram had that many servants in his house, nonetheless it was probably a very small force compared to the forces of the four kings that he was going out to fight. But nonetheless, God gives Abram the victory. He defeats these kings from the east. He brings back Lot, verse 16, his kinsman, as well as his possessions and the women and the children. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're really indebted to Abram. They had decided to rebel against the kings of the east, but they needed Abram to save them. And yet look how the king of Sodom speaks to Abram after he's rescued by him. Look at verse 21. This is when Abram meets these two kings. King of Sodom says, Give me the persons, but keep the goods for yourself. I don't see the word thank you there, do you? Very disrespectful way to speak to Abram. King of Sodom owes Abram his life. And instead he says, Give me back my people, keep the stuff for yourself. And in fact, what he was probably trying to do here was to get Abram under his influence. That if Abram was able to go off and say, I got this stuff from the king of Sodom, it was a free gift from him. Someday the king of Sodom is going to come to Abram's door and ask for the debt to be repaid. This was Sodom trying perhaps as well to give Abram an opportunity to come to the table to become a big name, a big deal a mover and a shaker in the region himself. This is the king of Sodom saying, you can be like me, you can be my ally if you play the game by my rules. And that may well have been a temptation for Abram, friends. Remember, he's still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises to him. He's, he's waiting for the day when he can call the land his own and he has offspring and he has, uh, that, that he becomes a blessing to other nations. The king of Sodom here is perhaps... Giving Abram an opportunity to have some of those things. But Abram turns him down flat. Look what he says in verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the man who went with me. Abram isn't going to touch friendship with Sodom with a barge pole. Because he knows that this is a king who manipulates and enslaves. Where was this king when Abram came and saved him? Hiding in a pit. Perhaps Lot was in one of those pits as well. Or rather he'd been taken off and was perhaps being held captive by his enemies. That's where allegiance with the king of Sodom gets you. And of course, friends, the king of Sodom here is a picture for us of the dangers of allying ourselves with the kingdom of this world, with any king but Christ. In the book of Ephesians, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Satan, the devil, the, the enemy of God, he's a deceiver. He, he, he came along to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he deceived them. Gave them something that looked so, so tempting, so, 
wonderful offer, the result was death and misery. And Satan, friends, works through the powers and the influences and the personalities of our world, the kings of Sodom, the influencers, the allurements, the attractions of our world, the things that offer us so much but deliver so little. And Lot here, having fallen for the attractions of Sodom, he has to be rescued by his uncle Abram. And of course, Abram coming and rescuing Lot from this pit that he was in, metaphorically speaking, if not literally, it's a picture for us, isn't it, of what the Lord Jesus Christ has to do for you and me if we're Christians. He has had to come and rescue us from the clutches of Satan. He's had to come and fix the mess that we made for ourselves when we chose sin instead of obedience, Satan instead of God, short-term gain instead of long-term promises. I wonder as you hear this today, do you feel like you're in a pit? You've chased after some experience, you've indulged in some sin, or you've thought you were good enough or smart enough to find joy and comfort in yourself and your work or your family or your ambitions. But now you're enslaved because you believe the lies of the prince of this world. Well, if that's you today, call out to your kinsman redeemer, your kinsman rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 40, we sang it earlier, puts it so vividly. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my, my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. He set my feet on a rock and made my steps secure. The Lord Jesus can do for you what Abram had to come along and do for Lot. He can rescue you from the pit of sin and death. And he can set your feet on solid ground. So the king of Satan, he doesn't matter that much and he doesn't offer that much. But secondly, and we'll be a little more brief as we look at the king of Salem. The king of Salem. Let's think about, again, how much does he matter and what does he offer? Well, at first, the king of Salem perhaps doesn't seem to matter as much as all these other kings in the story. He doesn't have an army. He isn't invited to take part in this military campaign. He's just one man in one city by himself. Suddenly he appears and suddenly he's gone again. But in fact, the king of Salem is the most significant king in this whole chapter. The king of Salem is a man called Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness and his title means king of peace. King of Salem means king of peace. And he is the only person, <coughs> he's the only person in the whole Old Testament who is described as both a king and a priest. If you look at verse 18, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So everywhere else in the Old Testament, people are either a king or they're a priest. This man is both a king and a priest. The only other person in the Bible who is described as both a king and a priest is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And as we read from Hebrews 7 earlier, this figure, Melchizedek, he's, he's a sort of a, a living picture. He's a, he's a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name means king of righteousness. Jesus Christ is the king of righteousness and of peace. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. And most commentators suggest that that's a, 
an abbreviated version of the name Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ, of course, is the king of the eternal Jerusalem. Melchizedek just appears in the text as as the writer to the Hebrews says. We're not told his family lineage. There's no family tree. And we're not told about how he died. Although, of course, he would have died someday. He was just a human man. But in a way, that's similar again to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus in eternity as the Son of God had no beginning. And yet he came into human history, as we'll think more about this evening, God willing. So friends, this figure of Melchizedek is very significant indeed. Even if the world at the time paid no attention to him. Out of all the kings we've read about in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is the only one who is serving and worshipping God Most High. Verse 18, the only king in the whole region of Canaan, not worshipping idols, but rather worshipping the living God. That makes him the most significant king in the text. But then also, what does he offer? What does the king of Salem, Melchizedek, offer? Well, notice that he offers Abram a word of blessing and a token of nourishment. He offers Abram a word of blessing And a token of nourishment. Verse 19. He blessed Abram. And said. Blessed be Abram by God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high. Who has delivered your enemies. Into your hand. So here's the priest friends. Of God most high. And he comes and he speaks to Abram. And he speaks a word of blessing to him. He reminds Abram of the promises. That God has already made to him. He reminds Abram that he's known and loved by God most high. That he is going to receive the things that God has promised to him. I mentioned last week that the name Abram in the original language. It sounds a little bit like the Hebrew word for bless or blessing. And so Abram in hearing the words of this king of Salem. He's reminded of the blessings in store for him. He he hears the word of God again if you like. The promises of God repeated to him again. He's reminded that it's God who gave him the victory over those other foolish kings. And God most high will keep his promises of protection and blessing and offspring and land to Abram. So the king of Salem offers Abram a word of blessing. But he also offers him then a token of nourishment. A token of nourishment. Verse 18 says he brought out bread and wine. Sharing a meal in the ancient world, particularly when it was between individuals from different regions or kingdoms, it was a sign that they had a relationship, that that they were allies, that they could enjoy fellowship together. And of course, on a practical level, Abram and his men needed nourishment. They've just traveled hundreds of miles to go and bring back Lot and defeat these other kings. They've been involved in warfare. They need Nourishment, And so Melchizedek offers Abram a word of blessing and he gives him a token of nourishment. And Abram recognizes the significance and the importance of Melchizedek. Look at the end of verse 20. It says in verse 20, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first time that we come across the practice of tithing in the Bible. Notice, by the way, that it's coming hundreds of years before tithing was commanded in the law of Moses. 
Uh, and so for, the, for that, and amongst other reasons, we believe that it's still a valid practice today. It's, it's the base point, really. It's the baseline for our giving to the Lord's work, giving a tithe. And Abram here gives a tithe of all that he has to the king of Salem. That, friends, is Abram rightly recognizing the king's importance. Abram has received blessing from Melchizedek. He has received nourishment from Melchizedek. He now gives back to Melchizedek. He gives his loyalty, if you like. He allies himself to Melchizedek. Abram rejected Sodom and chose Salem. He chose his king and he committed to him by giving to him. Have you chosen your king this morning? Have you chosen who will get the best and and who will get the first of what you can give in your life? Not just financially, but in every sense of that word. Psalm 110 describes the Lord Jesus as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We don't have time to consider everything that that means, but certainly it means that King Jesus, like King Melchizedek, he offers us blessing and he offers us nourishment. King Jesus speaks to us as Melchizedek spoke to Abram and he offers us a word of blessing. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, once declared to Jesus, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. The promises that Jesus makes to his friends. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. That I can forgive sins. That I can give you status as a child of God. Those are blessings that are to be seized upon and believed. They're blessings that no one else can offer us. No one else has rescued us as Christ has rescued us. No one else offers blessing as Christ offers us. And for those who do put their faith in the words of Christ and in the work of Christ, he also offers us nourishment. He nourishes us each day by his word. He nourishes us each time we meet to worship with fellow believers. He also nourishes us at his table in a similar way to how Melchizedek nourished Abram at his table. Because the Lord Jesus, of course, gives us the table of the Lord's Supper. And puts before us bread and wine. Just as the king of Salem put bread and wine before Abram. Of course for believers each time we gather at the table as God willing we will do in a fortnight's time. it's It's a form of nourishment for us spiritually as well as physically. It's a sign and a seal of what will happen in the future when Christ returns. And we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. We celebrate And we feast in the physical presence of our king. So again, which king do you serve this morning? Do you serve some worldly king? One of Satan's puppets offering you so much but in the end leaving you in need of rescue? Or do you serve the king of all kings? The king and priest like Melchizedek. But even greater than Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abram, great man though he was, gave even greater Melchizedek a tenth of all that he had. What will you repay to your king for all his blessings to you?
It goes far beyond what we put into the offering plate each week, though again, it includes that. But it extends to every part of our lives. Our work, our families, our witness, our worship. What is most significant in our world today is not what is necessarily making the front pages of the newspapers or the websites. It's what the people of Jesus Christ are doing in his name and giving for his glory. What will I repay to the Lord, the psalmist asks, for all his blessings to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Amen.